This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. As states and even some regulatory bodies begin to recognize the potential benefits of psychedelics as medical treatments, there are some big risks ahead. William Leonard Pickard is a psychedelics researcher. We discuss the regulatory and political pitfalls that may lie ahead for the attempt to move psychedelics into mainstream medicine. Let's begin here and we'll get some of the backstory uh, in a bit. But what do you see as the opportunity in psychedelic research and uh, medical treatment today? The opportunity for uh, psychedelic treatment uh, today would be to ensure that uh, clinical trials are not only efficacious, truly efficacious to um, overcome uh, FDA barriers, uh, but that there are no untoward events from uh, improper vetting of patients, uh, patients who clinically present who are perhaps should not be there, that they are a proper fit for the drug and the mode of treatment. So what stands in the way? Our ignorance uh, presently, because of the um, long, dark period of no government-funded research for the last 40 years, um, little is known. But uh, uh, other than anecdotal reports uh, from the underground, and of course the great, great work at uh, Hopkins, uh, by Roland Griffith and Matt Johnson and colleagues there uh, uh, established a uh, standard of uh, great value uh, published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology and uh, well-vetted by distinguished colleagues. And that, that established and really launched uh, the entire field. One of the problems that people identify about uh, various drugs that could be useful clinically uh, is that so many of these drugs aren't owned. That is to say, the, the chemical structures, they exist, and they've existed for a long time. And so it's hard for a pharmacological, big pharma, so-called, to make a buck. And so they don't fund the research. They look for something that they can derive exclusive uh, revenues from over time. And that seems to be a problem in psychedelics in particular. Well, of course, there's a great debate in the psychedelic and medical communities about uh, the divisiveness, uh, frankly, among, <clears throat> among those that wish to uh, patent uh, some variant of a uh, already uh, well-known, uh, uh, ages-old botanical. Uh, patents exclude uh, materials which are already um, uh, obvious or, or known to the community. Uh, the psychedelic companies uh, like Big Pharma try to get around this by doing exotic uh, changes on the molecule. For example, psilocybin um, has been established since its discovery in the early 50s and its synthesis uh, uh, by Albert Hoffman and others. The, the way that uh, psychedelic companies have approached it is to attempt to patent um, various um, crystalline lattices, if you will, polymorphs, as they're called, of psilocybin. So they're not really patenting psilocybin itself, but a crystalline form. Uh, another approach is they use um, uh, essentially um, uh, minor uh, radioactive uh, variants, uh, deuterated, as it's called, using deuterium. 
Uh, these are ploys uh, that have been uh, done by Big Pharma for many years in an attempt to patent, if they will, essentially unpatentable items or to make new claims on already patented drugs. So we're seeing this uh, replayed out in the, the psychedelic industry. Uh, um, there recently was a, um, a lawsuit really filed against um, uh, Compass Pathways in England, which is attempting to uh, patent a um, polymorph of uh, psilocybin. Uh, quite successfully, the patent office issued the patent, and now they've run into um, an adversarial uh, activist group, Freedom to Operate, which has challenged them in federal court. Uh, so the district courts and thereafter the appellate courts in the next three, four, five years will decide, uh, frankly, a good part of the future of the industry uh, are natural drugs, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, uh, patentable using these uh, unusual techniques, or are they not? And so Big Pharma will respond uh, very favorably or unfavorably to these. Uh, it'll, it'll be the wild west of a psychopharmacology in the next few years. So uh, these seem like, uh, if I understand you correctly, these seem like internal struggles among groups that would like to see uh, clinical uh, therapeutic use of these drugs. Is that right? And th that is correct. And uh, we will see uh, clinical trials, uh, perhaps not in the U.S. immediately, but uh, in Canada, quite underway and around the world. There are perhaps 200 different clinical trials ongoing as we speak uh, uh, around the world. And uh, we anticipate uh, the outcomes of some of the early players, the MDMA work uh, on PTSD among veterans, uh, the application of psilocybin for depression. Uh, we expect those results in the next uh, year to 18 months. And those outcomes as well will define the industry. I think the important point, though, in these clinical trials is uh, if FDA is to approve a substance, it must be more effective, more efficacious uh, for treatment of a particular uh, malady than the existing treatment. Now, that's kind of a high bar because for a decade or so, we've had SSRIs, for example, for a treatment of depression. And a billion dollars has been put into studying the mechanisms of action, the neurology, the biochemistry of these compounds, lots of drug design. And they've been specifically developed to uh, approach depression. Whereas now we're we're picking from the botanical uh, panorama these uh, exotic psychedelic drugs that uh, may or may not work, but look very promising in the early stages. So there there's great hope that these will be effective. But again, it's a very high bar to overcome the uh, FDA level of efficacy required for approval. Um, maybe 17% of all big pharma drugs are approved. So very few get over that bar. Will psychedelics make it? I I hope that we'll have new medicines, psychedelic or non-psychedelic. I hope that we'll have continual evolution of good medicines for these very sad diseases. If it's a psychedelic, great. If not, that's okay too. I have read, and uh, perhaps you can... Uh 
correct my understanding here that some of the early studies on psychedelics, uh, perhaps it was psilocybin or uh, MDMA on people who had PTSD were extremely promising, like almost stunning results. That's correct. Uh, the, some of the early work, uh, indeed, out of Hopkins and some of the early uh, MDMA reports um, indicate a level of improvement over current uh, treatment paradigms that is um, more than statistically significant, more than a few percent. They are profoundly uh, profound advance. And so it's uh, really a new paradigm in treatment. Uh, these these drugs aren't taken in a pill form every day as though you would uh, an SSRI, but uh, administered uh, rather than in chronic form in an acute form uh, under the presence of a therapist. Uh, um, they're not subtle, not I don't feel anything, but generally lifting of mood over a few months. They are intense, emotional, uh, deep experiences. Um, it's an uh, entirely different uh, treatment protocol. A big pharma, I'm sure, is uh, <laughs> quite curious about this phenomenon, especially if it could displace uh, their investments of the past decades. Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, you mentioned the dark ages of this psychopharmacological research. Um, there was a time when uh, the only government body that was doing any research in uh, psychedelics may well have been the CIA. Uh, yes, I just left Tyson's Corner this morning. Uh, not CIA headquarters, but <laughs> they were certainly nearby. Uh, right, this early CIA work, uh, the Project MK Ultra, uh, was designed to use um, to weaponize uh, certain psychedelics, um, not in the sense of lethality, but in the sense of being useful um, interrogation. Um, uh, methods for hostile foreign uh, agents uh, to extract uh, data and information from them. And those were carried on for quite a few years from the 50s uh, when CIA first uh, discovered these materials up through um, the church committee, Frank Church's uh, 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 committee in 72, which disbanded uh, the, um, the uh, government's uh, chemical efforts. But that's not to say that the government doesn't have a continuing interest in, in the, these fields. Um, uh, DOD, for uh, quite some years among warfighters, has been looking for uh, useful agents for, uh, that have anti-fatigue properties. They've, been, they've looked at uh, classes of compounds which might enhance memory, called ampokines, and supported research at, uh, uh, in California at Gary Lynch's lab, looking at materials that might improve cognitive um, performance or cognitive ability on the battlefield, being able to handle many different um, information inputs and assessments of of the theater and how to perform, anti-stress agents, uh, uh, even DARPA um, now currently is funding uh, 10 and $20 million research efforts uh, looking at ways of um, taking the psychedelic out of promising psychedelics, uh, MDMA analogs that are effective in treating uh, PTSD, but versions that don't have a psychedelic effect, 
was a great deal of uh, interest in, in that area. In other words, DARPA acknowledges that um, certain drugs may have healing properties useful to soldiers, but uh, they don't care for the, the um, as they say, deleterious um, uh, mental effects. And so they're trying to separate that. The question is, can it be separated? Can you separate a healing effect from what one might consider a long night of the soul? Um, that's um, quite debatable. So we should see how that turns out in the next few years. What did, for lack of a better term, the industry, the psychedelic industry, look like in the 1960s and 1970s? Okay, you're speaking of the underground industry, the illegal, illicit industry, that which operated outside of government regulation. And of course, that's 99.9% of all psychedelic uh, compounds uh, ever uh, used <laughs> worldwide. Uh, we're excluding uh, indigenous tribes' use of um, things like mescaline, the Tarahumara, for example, in Mexico or various parts of the world, uh, the Native American church, use of uh, mescaline, um, the um, Zapotec uh, in Oaxaca's use of psilocybin. Uh, and a range of, of similar actions uh, throughout South America. The New World, uh, psychedelics are a New World phenomenon. Um, the, the underground uh, status in the 60s in terms of uh, non-indigenous use was um, a series of single individuals, uh, underground acid chemists, the first acid chemist. Uh, uh, a number of them uh, died in prison. Uh, during the period when uh, FDA was in control of matters. Um, but um, DE was formed about 72. Uh, around that time, before that time, uh, there was, uh, it was BNDD. Uh, the f earliest uh, acid chemist of note was Augustus uh, Owsley Stanley III. Uh, a Kentucky <laughs> senator's uh, grandson, I believe, who produced um, 400 grams of LSD in San Francisco. That's a million doses. And uh, this went out all over Northern California, L.A., and Laguna Beach and points east. And uh, that was followed by uh, a rather serious scaling up to uh, several kilograms uh, made by... Uh, the underground chemists, uh, uh, Nikki, Nicholas Sand and uh, Tim Scully um, of the distribution group, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Uh, that went out, of course, in Northern California, across the United States and across uh, Europe, uh, Paris, uh, Rome, parts of Asia, South America, worldwide phenomenon. And that was distributed in the form of uh, Orange barrels, they were called, little tablets, uh, swirly orange barrels with uh, 240 micrograms of LSD in each one, which is actually quite a substantial dose. Um, the average dose these days is about 60 micrograms, um, enough for um, aesthetic enhancement, uh, the beauty of trees, um, the walking with friends, um, philosophical conversations, that sort of thing, nothing uh, too challenging, but uh, beautiful in its own way, some say. To what extent could we draw a line between the uh, desired outcomes of people who were 
seeking out these drugs then and people who might be seeking the kinds of treatment that these drugs could provide today? Well, it's entirely two different groups. You know, in the 60s, uh, we, people were, were seekers. Uh, we, no one over 30 uh, knew anything about these materials. Uh, uh, Ginsburg, uh, a few beats uh, were aware of them, but uh, hence the term, don't trust anyone over 30. But um, first generation, certainly my generation, I was 21, 22 at the time, when there was a great uh, wave of visitors and young people coming to San Francisco, hence the term, if you're going to San Francisco, wear flowers in your hair. The music of the time changed remarkably. Um, it's a great period of social revolution. There's changes in not only music, but in poetry and writing and science and medicine, politics, particularly the period of marching against the war in Vietnam. Of course, the government was very concerned because they equated marijuana and psychedelic use with civil unrest, and that could have been part of the reason for the making of the illegality uh, of uh, LSD in 66. So, um, Yes, there were, of course, two different two different groups. Today's group versus the groups then. In those days, uh, it was primarily young people, all of a single generation, uh, seeking out of curiosity what this remarkable new neurochemical would do. Uh, they thought it might end war, uh, end materialist values, a um, uh, type of mental stimulant. Um, something that would bring, uh, through neurochemical means, uh, peace and love, if you will, throughout society, kind of returning us to our more natural origins and away from a machine-like militaristic uh, direction in which they saw society moving, particularly with the Vietnam War. Today's group, since the, um, the current framework is the medical model being the only way that one could get government approval, you get through FDA, is not to claim we want to dance in the street or walk in the moonlight, but we have people that are um, uh, having problem with uh, neuroses or uh, marital problems, or autism or depression, and we think these drugs may be useful. And so... The cohort of uh, users uh, these days, excluding the continuing underground use, which goes on as we speak, uh, the new above-ground visible cohort are uh, uh, people seeking uh, treatment uh, for their depression or for their anxiety or a variety of psychiatric maladies. Um, uh, that's That's quite a unusual phenomenon and, and very, very different from the 60s because uh, in the 60s, if a person, a friend, a young person came up and they were depressed or they were anxious or they were schizzy or they were having some bipolar bit or somehow they were off, um, the unwritten rule was you don't give these compounds, these powerful substances to such people because they might find themselves in a painful situation and you might find yourself uh, up all night trying to handle the behavioral outcomes from it. So that was a good rule and uh, was pretty effective for the last 40 years. But uh, now, in order to use these drugs legally, one has to present with a medical problem 
or a quasi-medical problem. Um, that means uh, the exposure to people that in the past would never be given these drugs. Uh, that's going to uh, be quite interesting to see how the clinical trials bear out if people are vetted significantly so that we don't have unusual behavioral manifestations during clinical trials. Uh, the media would immediately seize on that. In the 1970s and 1980s, there were uh, scientists who were attempting to, in, in some ways, legitimize research in this field. Uh, for a lot of them, uh, if I understand your uh, argument, is that these people faced the ends of their careers if they were to make public the fact that they had an interest in this kind of research. Absolutely. And um, that period of um, seeing psychedelics as marginalized or fringe or um, uh, ridiculous um, uh, only ended uh, a few years ago with the, uh, with the Roland Griffith's great work at Hopkins. Um, and also, uh, frankly, uh, through the seminal efforts of um, uh, Rick Doblin at MAPS, uh, a colleague, uh, actually, at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, Rick was uh, some years ahead of me, but I can recall when uh, MAPS was originally organized and moving forward. And um, you know, great barriers were faced in getting people to listen or not uh, discard the concept uh, immediately as um, too exotic or inappropriate. If you said the word psychedelic or showed any interest in it in an academic field, you were immediately marginalized and excluded. So um, now, of course, it's... it's uh, the potential darling of the psychiatric community, and um, many careers are arising from it and focusing on it, and it looks like that's going to go on for quite a number of years more. Uh, indeed, it may be a favorable a revolution. Uh, my personal feeling on this, having lived in this space uh, daily um, for uh, 55 years, is that um, uh, 80 or more percent of uh, existing corporations that are attempting to medicalize will either fail or emerge or be acquired. I think that uh, it's a period of great enthusiasm and perhaps uh, too much enthusiasm, but that said that uh, many will survive and we will have extremely promising new medicines of uh, great value. Are there any concerns that you have? You sort of laid out, a, a, I think, a couple of them of the commercialization of psychedelics because uh, I know there is immense interest on Wall Street of the potential of these drugs to treat people. Well, of course, uh, Wall Street uh, sees the figures, uh, which are indeed most promising themselves until the recent correction in the S&P in uh, December and forward and a similar correction in biotech sector as well. And psychedelics perhaps took the stronger hit, being uh, the new guy on the block and uh, perhaps overvalued. Um, but of course, Wall Street's interest is uh, most cordially invited and, um, you know, ma major investors are... are Look, looking very carefully, or have already placed large bets favorably in, in the field. It's just uh, I, I hope that uh, the investment community has a staying power to get through this uh, this correction and hold on through the clinical trials and watch those outcomes.
It's a very heady, very heady, very exciting period. Uh, I, I never thought I would see it in my lifetime, frankly. And uh, you, you made mention of some of the concerns that you had with regard to uh, individuals who, in the 60s, it, it would have been well known not to give these people uh, these very powerful drugs who will nonetheless be in a medical setting would be potentially given these drugs. And if if anything goes wrong or if the results of this testing goes badly, then you can imagine certain lawmakers on Capitol Hill and elsewhere uh, seizing on that opportunity. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that can happen. And, you know, it, it just takes a, um, a, a few newsworthy incidents, uh, whatever, to to help that uh, media focus uh, come alive. But uh, perhaps the beauty of it is, is that these, these compounds, even though um, profound, are frankly uh, remarkably, remarkably safe. You know, there are 20,000 deaths a year from aspirin and if that were applied to uh, psychedelics, they would be uh, demonized even more than they have been. But remarkably, uh, they tend to be generally um, uh, quite non-toxic. The legacy compounds, uh, um, LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, tend to be um, <clears throat> non-addictive uh, physically. Um, and also uh, the curious property of being self-limiting uh, by that I mean uh, cocaine addict uh, or heroin addict uh, craves their substance on a daily basis and often will do anything to get it, uh, hence um, increases in crime rates and heroin-riddled portions of cities and frantic cocaine addicts running, running about. But psychedelics tend to provide a type of personal insight during the experience that... Um, allows um, self-termination of the period of use. One looks within and decides one doesn't need a drug anymore and simply stops. And that's an uh, extraordinary property of this class of compounds. So the period of self-limitation, I think, will uh, uh, attenuate um, any particular negative social changes that might be perceived or arise, and I think those are would be rare. Uh, would be rare to see a a uh, a negative outcome during clinical trial. I'm just pointing out that it's uh, likely that we will see some over time. Uh, it's hard to imagine a clinical trial without a negative outcome, but I think things will be all right. Are there specific changes to the way that drugs are regulated? Uh, or, in fact, you know, any medical treatments are regulated that would uh, make this process move more swiftly for the people who might benefit immensely from this kind of uh, medicine. Well, you know, there are a number of regulatory uh, approaches uh, that are ongoing as we speak. Um, you know, FDA has a fast track program. You know, they have an orphan drug designation. Um, even DEA uh, has uh, mechanisms for for getting a drugs approved or rescheduled properly, and activists are beginning to uh, to show up to kind of stimulate those. I know at uh, headquarters here the other day there was a sort of a 
a lion reminiscent of the 60s, and people were carted away, um, you know, arguing that they uh, must respond to a letter sent 18 months ago uh, requesting uh, a special permission for those with um, life-threatening and terminal diseases to, um, under special uh, conditions, use um, psilocybin or various psychedelics for, for healing in their last days. And that's a very compassionate and humanitarian uh, thought. So I think we'll see more and more of that going down, yes. William Leonard Pickard is a psychedelics researcher we spoke last month. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>